People probably didn't want to hear about bad things all the time, and we thought it was about time to cover something good. So, getting right into it, Kavita. <laughs> yes. Do you drink green tea? You know, I actually don't really drink green tea. The only tea I drink is chai, and it's very milky, and I only drink it usually on afternoons where I'm able to leisurely have great conversation with friends. Radical. So, I drink green tea sometimes, although I'm generally more of a coffee person, I guess. But it turns out that green tea is the second most commonly consumed beverage in the world after water. Whoa, that's uh, very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that came up in a couple of papers. I don't know where the original data came from, Mm -hmm. but I guess it makes sense considering that modern pop is not necessarily seen in you know, all of Africa and most of Asia and those kinds of things. That's true. That makes sense. But Cody, I do see a lot of green tea products around your space. I see these matcha pills and I saw matcha powder in your kitchen. So what are your thoughts? What are you, what are you trying to get to? So my interest in green tea came from a lot of the things we're going to talk about here, that it is good for your sort of general health and lifespan and cancer prevention, and it's also supposed to be good for your cardiovascular health. And there's a lot of touted benefits for obesity prevention. And as I've mentioned before, I have an obesity history, so I'm a little bit paranoid about trying to prevent that from coming back. And it seems like a not terribly insane measure to try and keep that at bay. That makes sense. So we read some papers so that you guys don't have to read as many papers (laughs) if you I uh, just want to know some of the the interesting facts and don't have time for a lot of papers. <laughs> so green tea is made of the plant Camellia sinensis, and uh, this is actually the only caffeine source known that can grow in a temperate climate. So after civilization collapses due to all this climate change, a lot of us might have to become tea people if... Uh, <laughs> if global warming didn't catch up to our latitude. But green tea, oolong tea, and black tea all come from the same plant. Also white tea, although that didn't come up as much in the studies. That's interesting. But it all has to do with the way it's prepared. And green tea is made from fresh tea leaves that have been steamed or dried so that what they call the phytochemicals, a lot of the good stuff that's chilling out in the tea leaf, it doesn't break down before it gets into your body and can do what it does. And the major class of plant compounds, they're they're called polyphenols, and there's a subclass called catechins that we're going to talk more about. And interestingly, although green tea is commonly associated with East Asia, it turns out that it was first introduced to Japan from India during the 17th century. So, Kavita, your people get credit for this one. (laughs) Another thing we can take credit for, along with the number zero in chess. (laughs) Jeez. 
All right. So we're going to talk a lot about catechins here, but there are two other active components in green tea worth talking about. One is theophylline, which is a compound that's similar to caffeine, but not completely identical. And that's where you get a lot of the stimulant effects for tea. And there's also essential oils, which are apparently a real thing uh, and not just (laughs) something that people invented to sell on Facebook. But it says that the essential oils in green tea might aid digestion and that if you brew the tea too long, they can evaporate off. So that's kind of interesting. It's not something that was covered a whole lot in the literature. As of yet, we do not recommend putting drops of essential oils into your mouth or sticking your head right above your oil diffuser. Yeah, sounds unwise. (laughs) So as far as these catechins go, there are four that are kind of a big deal and they have confusingly similar names. But the take-home point that I got when I was doing my reading is that the big bad catechin goes by the name of epigallocatechin 3-gallate, which we will hereafter be calling EGCG. And that's about 60% of the catechins that are found in green tea. And this is sort of the hot button thing that you're going to look for on nutrition labels if you're trying to figure out how much of the good stuff you're getting. Species of green tea and how it's prepared might affect the preparation, but the average cup of green tea has about 90 milligrams of this stuff. And... Um, matcha, which is another preparation made of green tea that is a powdered form where the whole leaf is ground up and dissolved into a tea traditionally, that's got about two to three times higher concentration of EGCG per cup. There's a figure that's tossed around a lot of it being 137 times (laughs) more potent. Yeah, And I've heard that from a lot of reputable people but it sounds like that came from a real study, but it was 137 times greater than a really poor source that they were comparing it to. Mm. If it was 137 times more than the average cup, that would actually be enough EGCG to give you like nausea and potentially some worse side effects that we'll talk about. The, the take-home point there is that matcha is quite good for you from the standpoint of these polyphenols, but you're getting more bang from your buck from traditional green tea at this point because it is just way cheaper if you go get your basic green tea from the grocery store. Mm -hmm. The other three that we won't really talk about hereafter are epigallocatechin, which is EGC, and epicatechin 3-gallate, ECG, um, (laughs) and epicatechin EC. So thankfully for everyone involved, including us, we don't need to worry about all these confusing letters. E, <laughs> just the, the EGCG is the potent plant compound that does most of the good things that people are trying to get out of green tea. And it's got anti-mutagenic properties. Anti- What's that? That means that in vitro, meaning in cell studies in glass uh, or plastic more likely nowadays, they've found that these green tea compounds can um, slow the rate of mutation of things and like prevent DNA damage. Okay. So that links into a lot of the anti-cancer effects. Okay. It's also anti-diabetic, anti-inflammatory, what they call hypocholesterolemic, which 
means that it lowers the level of cholesterol in the blood, the bad cholesterol specifically. And it's also got antibacterial and antiviral properties. Whoa, that all sounds amazing. It's pretty good stuff. <laughs> so the first category we'll look at uh, in terms of the effects of green tea is cancer. The first cancer we'll talk about is breast cancer. There are some studies that suggest that the EGCG, so that really good thing in green tea, prevented cancer cells from growing in vitro, so in those lab studies of cells. And they did that by stopping the telomerase activity of the cells. And telomerase is kind of the thing, it's an enzyme, so it's a little protein that works on the DNA and it prevents the DNA from getting shortened every time that you replicate it. So every time the cell splits into a new cell, it helps keep things preserved on the ends. Yeah, so telomerase is sort of an immortalizing agent that can oh, be thought yeah. of that way. And I can, just as a quick aside, these MCF7 cells that they used, I actually worked with those during my oh. PhD. They're really hardy. They grow, they're what we call an immortalized cell line. So oh. I, I worked with the same MCF7 cells for four years, and you can just keep growing and feeding them and growing them and feeding them and scraping them off. And so the reason they're able to do that is because of the um, telomerase. And what this was able to do is kind of shut that down and make them die like human cells normally do. All right, so. That is crazy. I'm thinking about these cells. Yeah, that's one of the things we could definitely do an aside about the HeLa cells and things like that at some point, especially yeah. since that's part of our history uh, here in Baltimore is yeah. uh, the story of Henrietta Lacks. And I guess that's going to be a movie soon. Oh, is it? Mm -hmm. I think okay. Oprah's in it. Oh, that's big time. Yeah. But that's another set of cells like that where Henrietta Lacks, of course, has passed away, but her DNA or a somewhat mutated portion of it is still alive and well all over the world because of these immortalized cells that came from a, a cancer that she had. Immortalized cells, I'm still thinking about them. It's super scary. I mean, I guess that's what all cancer cells are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a wild concept. And it's one of those things that where people who think about these utopian anti-aging types of research, you've always got to think about the risk of things going out of control and doing things like making cancers. True. It's still, I don't know, it just gives me the creeps. But I will continue. <laughs> so green tea also showed a significant reduction in breast cancer compared in women who drank green tea less than once a month versus women who drank green tea more than that. Mm -hmm. And there was a dose-response relationship. So it found that the more green tea that women drank, the uh, more their risk of breast cancer was reduced. Mm -hmm. And it's also been associated. So, you know, it's not causing, it's not a direct link, but it's, you know, maybe a suggestion that it decreases the rate of cancer recurrence. So maybe in a woman who had breast cancer was treated drinking green tea may improve her chances of not getting it again. Yeah, and they said that that's actually most evident in the early stages. So mm. something about that was able to kind of keep the cancer cells that were still around from gaining a foothold and starting a new tumor. Got it. Lung cancer is our next topic. 
And the research has found that in cigarette smokers, there was a study by Shim and other researchers finding that green tea can block the increase in, okay, this is a fancy word, but sister chromatid exchange frequency that happens with cigarettes. And Cody, I want you to decode that for us because I have not thought about a sister chromatid in a while. Neither have I, but this is just one form of DNA alteration that can lead to mutations and ultimately uh, cancer formation. So the way I think of it is, if you've ever seen a picture of a chromosome, it looks like an X, right? Mm -hmm. And that X is made of two sister chromatids. Um, And what can happen is because of the the way they're strung together and the similarity of the Mm -hmm. sequence, they can actually just swap out chunks from one part of the X to the other part of the X. And when those switches happen, you can introduce variability in the genome. And the more changes you make, the more likely mistakes are to build up and genes are to get broken. And that's how you end up with goggled gene sequencing that lets cancers happen and other bad things. Got it. Ovarian cancers are next topic. And there was a study by Zhang and other researchers finding that the ovarian cancer risk decreased with the increased frequency and duration of green tea consumption. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of these things are dose response then. Yeah. Where um, it's not clear that there's a practical upper limit. I mean, I'm sure you probably don't want to be on a green tea drip all the time. (laughs) But more seems to be better. Yeah, it really does seem to be that way, which is interesting because I'm just thinking about how does one make the time to drink all this green tea in a day? Yeah, that's where I think the capsules are pretty cool um, (laughs) as a way of sort of taking... It does take the ritual out of it, which I think is a bummer. But um, from a health effects standpoint, it's nice to have that option. Yeah, totally. This kind of makes me think about our conversation with uh, Dr. Steele last week or last podcast about how... We've, we're so busy nowadays in America that we've kind of lost that sort of pace that we could have. Yeah, and I think it does beg the question, what, what are the consequences of that? Can you really make up for that by making things more convenient, or should we be focusing as a society on allowing more flexibility and slowing down and not trying to get quite so much done quite so quickly? True. But I feel like that's a... That's worth its own podcast at some point. Totally. And maybe our upcoming podcast on forest bathing might offer some insight into that question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame it's probably too too cold to bathe in forests recent or right around now. But. Oh, forest I imagine can be bathed in at any time of year. Hmm. We're gonna need mittens. <laughs> Next cancer is prostate cancer. And they found that EGCG inhibited the growth of prostate cancer cells and induced apoptosis, which is kind of cells self-destructing. Yeah, that's what we call programmed cell death. And that's where a cell realizes that something has gone horribly wrong and it pushes the eject button essentially and breaks down in such a way that it's easier for the parts of that cell to be picked up and reused. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is, it's, oh, that makes me think of like suicide bombers. Mm. Well, it's a, 
It's a crazy world inside the uh, the human body. Yeah, I, I'm honestly getting more and more creeped out by cells. <laughs> I don't know if it's the time of day or what. Well, I don't know. We have an alternative right now. You're going to have to continue to be made of them. <laughs> Although I know that, Cody, you have lots of ideas for <laughs> computer-based humans. Yeah, maybe we'll be transhumanists someday. Maybe we'll get <laughs> Ray Kurzweil and his buddies on here someday. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when I was reading through the cancer literature, it sounded like there was plenty of reason to consume green tea to try to prevent cancer, but it is clear that it's not some sort of magic bullet. This is not something that's going to replace chemotherapy anytime soon. And it's not, it's not a miracle cure. There's plenty of studies where it didn't really have much of an effect or it only had an effect in women and not men. So I think that my big takeaway from that was that it was not going to do any harm, but it was not something that can allow you to completely rest easily. It still really helps to do other anti-cancer things like not smoking, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah, I agree. And before we move on to the next section, can I tell you about an exciting internal medicine article on tea and esophageal cancer? Only if it's about burninating your throat. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> All right, let's hear it. <laughs> so this is a original research article from the Annals of Internal Medicine, which is one of the big journals for my specialty internal medicine. And the title is Hot Tea Consumption and Its Interactions with Alcohol and Tobacco Use on the Risk for Esophageal Cancer. It's by um, this researcher named Dr. Yu and others. And what they did, I'm going to go into it a little bit just because I think it's fun. And I think the sort of way that they analyzed their study was uh, entertaining. Sounds interesting. <laughs> so they start off by saying that China's among, and this was a study done in China. And they said China is one of the countries with the highest incidence of esophageal cancer, which means highest number of new esophageal cancer cases per year. And That's sad. Yeah, it is. It is really sad. And tea drinkers, especially Chinese men, are more likely to smoke and to drink alcohol, hmm. which is also an interesting fact. Yeah. I guess they're all kind of social things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what they did was they looked at 10 regions throughout China. They looked at five urban, five rural. They looked over four years. They looked at about half a million people aged 30 to 79 and they did, and initially they did these questionnaires. And so they would ask people to talk about how often they drank tea. They also asked how many um, days in a week they drank tea, if they drank it very often, how many cups they took in in one day, um, the volume of tea leaves that they added each time, how many times they changed the leaves in one drinking day, the type of tea they drink most, the usual temperature of the tea. And so the way they described the temperature was room temperature or warm, hot, or burning hot. And then the age at which they started drinking tea weekly, which I feel like that would be so fun to do that questionnaire and just ask people about their tea drinking habits. It would be way more interesting than a lot of other surveys that people have to do. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that the... Uh... Temperature would vary so much because I guess I've never really thought about it. Yeah. I just, I have like a hot shot and I just push the button and when the light turns off, I'm like, okay, I guess this is probably going to work. <laughs> it's so true though. I mean, I, 
I sometimes will drink lukewarm tea because it's gotten cold, or sometimes I'll drink it super hot and burn my throat. It's definitely an important question to answer. They also asked smokers how about their smoking habits, people who drink alcohol about their drinking habits. And then they looked at the number of people who got esophageal cancer during that study period. So what they found was that 42.1% of the men and 16% of the women drank tea daily. And men and women who preferred burning hot tea were more likely to be current smokers, consume alcohol daily, drink more cups of tea, and add more tea leaves per day. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, so many sort of things associated with each other. And then what they found was that compared to men who drink tea less than once a week, the hazard ratio, which maybe, Cody, you can explain a little bit for us before I move forward. Okay. Oh, the statistics. (laughs) So... Let me just punch this up. Yeah, please do. I I never want to mess these things up because, you know, you get one shot to imprint in somebody's mind what a hazard ratio is. All right. So according to Dr. Wikipedia, so this is the ratio of hazard rates corresponding to two or to the conditions described by two levels of an explanatory variable, which doesn't really mean anything to me. So the example they give is you may have a population treated by a drug that's dying at twice the rate of a control population. Therefore, the hazard ratio is two, meaning that the thing you're looking at being death is happening twice as often. So in this case, I'm guessing that the hazard ratio is the rate of acquiring esophageal cancer. So a higher hazard ratio means it's more likely to happen And a hazard ratio of one sounds like it's equal. And then if it's happening twice as much, it's two, 10 times as much, 10. So this is kind of one of those more practical measures once you can wrap your head around it. Absolutely. And so that's what our association is in this study, the hazard ratio for esophageal cancer happening. They interestingly found that for uh, daily tea drinkers who are men compared to men who drink tea less than weekly, the hazard ratios for esophageal cancer were 1.17, 1.3, and 1.55 for male daily tea drinkers who preferred their beverages warm, hot, and burning hot. Hmm. So okay. for men, the hotter the temperature, the higher the hazard ratio for esophageal cancer. Hmm. And this is interesting. So we didn't talk about it explicitly here, but one of the big, big causes of esophageal cancer that's thrown around in medicine is alcohol consumption. And that is because literally just the act of drinking the alcohol is damaging your throat. And when you do enough damage to some cells, then eventually some of them may become cancerous cells because of the act of receiving damage, mutating a little bit, receiving damage, mutating a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then going out of control. Mm-hmm. And these Absolutely. are all synergistic, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And But interestingly, there was no statistically significant association with the temperature of the tea and esophageal cancer in women. Weird. Now, that's interesting, too, because looking back at some of the earlier statistics, it sounds like 
women were drinking tea a lot less often. And you talked about there being this high correlation with smoking, which can cause this, or is very, very mm -hmm. highly associated with esophageal cancer. And maybe the fact that it's this social thing that sounds like it happens out in these environments where other bad habits are happening might be skewing the results in mm -hmm. men and whereas women might be consuming their tea in a different setting in that culture. I'm just guessing. Yeah. But that's what uh, might explain that. Yeah, it's a good explanation. And also, interestingly, they just had fewer women with esophageal cancer in this study. So I wonder if that smaller number just makes it hard to analyze what the cause was for their esophageal cancer. Yeah, yeah, because if we're going to have any statistical asides, one of the central tenets of any kind of research is that the more people or animals or whatever you're studying that you include, the more likely you are to be able to see a difference if a difference exists. That's the idea of N and almost no matter what more subjects is going to give you a more powerful study. The only drawback is that you might see a false positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got it. And then they also observed a statistically significant increase in men getting esophageal at risk of getting esophageal cancer with the more cups of tea that they drink, more tea leaves that they added, longer time that they had been drinking tea and drinking green tea versus black or oolong. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So wait, green tea was more risky? Yeah, for men, That's interestingly. Bizarre. So now they looked at how does this relate to smoking and drinking alcohol? Mm -hmm. They found a stronger association between esophageal cancer risk amongst all the people in people who drank 15 grams or more of alcohol per day and people who were current smokers. Interesting. Do you get a sense of how much risk there was to just using the hot tea if there weren't the other factors involved? So, yeah, that's my next analysis. They found that in the absence of smoking and drinking a lot of alcohol, daily tea drinking wasn't associated with an increased risk for esophageal cancer, regardless of the temperature of the tea. Woot! <laughs> so it's not that bad <laughs> no. by itself. No. Cool. It's not that bad by itself. And so they found this, you know, synergistic connection between drinking hot tea, drinking too much alcohol, and smoking, and your increased risk for getting esophageal cancer. Hmm. And that risk for people who drink really hot tea, drink a lot of alcohol, and smoke are five times more likely to get esophageal cancer than people who had none of those three habits. And then as we said, if you're not drinking a lot or not smoking a lot, there isn't as much of a link between just drinking hot tea. Hmm. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like it's necessary for other damage to be happening to the esophagus before green tea comes into play. But that's, to me, an even bigger warning against smoking and drinking to excess because you got something that is otherwise largely a positive that can be twisted into something that can be harmful in the setting of those. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that it can be synergistic when without those two risk factors, smoking and drinking alcohol, it's not, doesn't have an effect. Mm. And of course, because this is internal medicine and we like to be thorough, 
they offered some limitations to this study, so reasons why you might want to take what they say with a grain of salt. And I thought these were just funny. So the first one isn't that funny. It's just saying that in the surveys, they just asked people at the beginning of the study how they drank tea. And that was just, you know, asking you how you drink tea, which might not be true or it might change over time. The next thing is they asked people subjectively about the tea temperature. They didn't actually measure it. Mm. And the other thing they didn't ask about was the size of their sips. Oh, man. <laughs> and that's important because the size of your sip and the initial temperature of the tea determines the temperature of the tea in your esophagus. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> so what we need to get, do is get these these people who are <laughs> engaging in the habit of smoking, drinking, and having their piping hot green tea and get them really, really long straws. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's a, probably a good intervention to study. I think you're on to something. Let's do it. The other thing that they didn't think about was that people who drink really hot tea might also drink really hot other things or eat really hot other things. Mm. But they didn't get any of that information. The other thing is... With the women, so fewer women in the study population smoked or drank alcohol, mm. which sort of created those inconclusive results and difference between the sexes when we were looking at the um, connections. Mm. Interesting. And so their study essentially shows that if you drink alcohol or smoke, shouldn't drink hot tea. And their last line is that, they really want more studies for this, and studies that directly measure the tea temperature are particularly encouraged. All right. <laughs> well, given the funding climate, I'm sure that's. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get our top people on that. <laughs> I really want to do that now. Ask for uh, money for a project where I'm just going to check the temperature of tea. All right. No, oh, that is a. There's a, a really interesting study. And yeah. The idea of looking at things that are so easily modified, I feel like that's one of those real rubber hits the road kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always nice to know when the newest, hottest monoclonal antibody is going to cure a disease. But if you can say that making this one change makes a big difference, well, that's useful information. Yeah, yeah. And especially if you can't drink anything but piping hot tea, then it's imperative that you make some changes. For sure. <laughs> Radical. Okay, Cody, tell us about all matters of the heart. All right. So we're back to my favorite, least, least favorite <laughs> organ, the, the great betrayer, the wad of meat that moves our blood around and finds every conceivable way to break, the heart. So it turns out that drinking green tea is probably good for you, heart-wise. And there were a bunch of really interesting effects. This uh, study by Yang and colleagues found that drinking 120 milliliters a day of green or oolong tea, and 120 milliliters is, let's see, so a two, a two liter pop bottle would be 2,000 liters, so one around one twentieth of that, basically just a cup or two. Like a little teacup, right? Yeah of green or oolong tea significantly reduced the risk of hypertension in the Chinese population. And Hodgson and colleagues found that it may have a positive effect on blood pressure in older women. Some other studies didn't see a change in blood pressure, however, so it might be kind of a weak effect. And again, this may very well be a 
both a dose response problem and also a multifactorial problem where it's only showing up in people that have a certain amount of high blood pressure to begin with. Mm -hmm. But the effect appeared to be at least present in certain populations. Okay. And studies by Singh and colleagues and also by Murakami and Osato found that dietary green tea intake preserved and improved arterial compliance and endothelial function. Now, what are those? Oh, yeah. Arterial compliance, when you're talking about compliance in this context, it's how stretchy something is. And in the study of heart disease, what we want is nice, stretchy blood vessels, uh, particularly our arteries, and we don't want them to be crispy um, (laughs) with atherosclerosis. (laughs) And they do literally get crispy. It's really disturbing. (laughs) I think you just... Like ruined crispy textured foods for the next 24 hours for me, Cody. I'm sorry. <laughs> but think about your heart. <laughs> An endothelial function. So the around the inside of your blood vessels, really on the inside of anything in your body, is what's called endothelium. And you can think of it like the lining, like, uh, like how the lining of your water bottle, you don't want it to get effed up so that you're <laughs> getting rust or plastic or something into your drink. And it's... In the body, it's a really active layer of cells, and that's the kind of thing that when it gets damaged, it leads to problems. Like, in order for plaques to form in your blood vessels, you have to have some sort of endothelial damage, and then things start to build up, and all sorts of badness starts to happen. So those studies pointed to the idea that green tea actually promotes that, and... It's also been inversely associated with the development and progression of atherosclerosis. Those are the nasty, crispy plaques that show up in your blood vessels. <laughs> inversely associated, of course, means that the more green tea is happening, the less crispy blood vessels are happening. <laughs> and, and Sazazuki found that four cups or more per day led to a decrease in coronary atherosclerosis, but only in men. Sorry, women. <laughs> But coronary uh, blood vessels, of course, are the ones that feed your heart. And those are especially important because, once again, the heart is a bag of meat that likes to break. (laughs) And when it breaks, it's very bad. (laughs) So Nakachi et al., et al. meaning and colleagues, found they did a prospective cohort study. So that means that they, it's a slightly stronger study design where they, lay out the study and then watch it rather than trying to look back on data that already exists. They found that 10 or more cups a day of green tea was associated with a decreased relative risk of death from heart disease in men. The same trend was present in women, but it didn't reach statistical significance. And this could be for a number of factors. Women's heart disease is yet another topic that deserves its own podcast. It's a little bit harder to detect, and it's probably more dangerous in some ways for those reasons. And there are probably a number of other confounds that may be leading to the less striking results in the female population. I suspect that it's still having some benefit. It just may not be as clear based on those factors. 10 cups a day seems like a lot of green tea to drink. It really does. And it's interesting that they were even able to find a large enough sample that drank that. Yeah. However, in the era of big gulps, I mean, if we were to (laughs) 
if we were to swap out some of our other beverages with, That's true. with green tea, it wouldn't be an insane amount. That's true. And there's also the option of using pills and those things, which I'm not above. I mean, I'm a pragmatist. I think that whatever gets you the, the compounds that are promoting your health is worth looking into. Is the taste of cold, like iced green tea good? Have you had that before? It's pretty decent. I actually really liked the Arizona green tea that comes in the giant can for 99 cents. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty decent. It's got a little bit of sugar in it, so it's not the best thing to drink. But after our artificial sweeteners episode, it's probably not the worst thing you can put in your body either. It's less uh, sugary than most kinds of pop. Yeah. I'm wondering if we should petition 7-Eleven to uh, replace the Big Gulp sodas with Big Gulp iced green tea. With minimal sugar, but no artificial sugar. Yeah, well, they probably do have an iced tea option. And a lot of these studies did show that black tea was doing something, even though green tea is usually the better pick. Okay. Um, Let's see what else we have. So Travis Santo and Kim found that green tea polyphenols, the plant compounds that we talked about, they might interfere with the formation of atherosclerotic plaques by stopping and slowing down reactions involving bad cholesterol so they can kind of get in the way of that process that I alluded to earlier that the crispiness (laughs) yeah that you get like a little nick in the lining and then all of a sudden these cells are like oh man something's gotta happen here and there's something about (laughs) foam cells and I'm having flashbacks to my cardiology (laughs) rotation and I'm gonna have my own heart problems but <laughs> Cody's sweating and looks uncomfortable. Should I take him to the hospital? Oh, please don't. <laughs> I'll probably get PTSD from the uh, ICU if I end up there, <laughs> which is actually a very serious thing worth talking about. And again, uh, I feel like every time we do a podcast, we come up with 10 new topics. Yeah. If only we wrote these down, maybe we should do that. We'll just have to listen to our own podcasts and hope they're not terrible. Um, <laughs> Um, So self-deprecating. All right. So there's also a meta-analysis by uh, Peters and colleagues. Dude, what's a meta-analysis? So meta-analysis is where you take a bunch of other studies and you look at them systematically. The most famous set of those is Cochrane Reviews, um, which we look at for a lot of topics. I think here we ended up glossing over it because there were so many other Mm -hmm. good reviews. But basically a meta-analysis is like, okay, a lot of people have looked at this we can throw all these similar studies together and get a lot more power. And then we can make bolder claims about what really is happening versus what's sort of a fluke or a false positive. Got it. It's like the Power Rangers when they all come together to form the robot. I forget what it's called. The Megazord. Yes. (laughs) Which is, yeah, or Voltron, depending on what show you're watching. (laughs) But um, they found that the rates of heart attacks went down by 11% with a three-cup increase in green tea consumption. I thought that was pretty great. Does that mean that you have to increase three cups from what you're already drinking or drink three cups? So my understanding is that it was like a dose-response relationship. So every three cups you go up, you get an 11% increase. I'm sure that drops off after a point. Yeah. I'm Maybe guess- after 10. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I'm pretty sure you can't get like a 99% increase on straight green tea. You just have like, you've got like a pile of, um, of like 
KFC in one hand <laughs> and like a bottomless <laughs> vat of green tea in the other. And you're like, bring it on. <laughs> but that was kind of cool. And that then, is. Um, and then Hertog and colleagues found no association of catechins from tea uh, intake with heart disease in a 14-year study that took place in Wales. But that could be due to other lifestyle factors or to the doses of catechins being too low. There might also be socioeconomic factors. But I thought it was important to highlight this, that mm -hmm. this was a study that took place like in a population. And it seems like just casual consumption of tea might not have a huge effect. You may have mm -hmm. to really set yourself to the goal of trying to replace other beverages with green tea as much as possible mm -hmm. if, um, if you want to get these benefits. Got it. So to abruptly segue. <laughs> Away from your favorite organ. Yeah. So there are a lot of other positive effects. The mechanisms of some of these positive effects. So the green tea polyphenols are able to chelate metal ions, iron and copper. Chelating means that they can kind of pull them out of the, the body. And iron and copper, when they're floating around in the bloodstream, are bad typically the so there are two reactions that i'm not going to dive real deep into but the fenton reaction and the haber weiss reaction i know the fenton reaction is really important in that it creates reactive oxygen species in the presence of iron and it's one of the reasons excess iron is bad and why hemochromatosis is not a great thing to have shout out to the connor lab who study everything to do with iron and that's where i got my phd oh so. fancy that and what are reactive oxygen species? Why are they bad? Reactive oxygen species are molecules that have oxygen chemically exposed in a way that it can form other damaging compounds. So there's a lot of chain reactions that happen with reactive oxygen species, and they can do what's called lipid peroxidation, where they react with fats and it leads to problems that can cascade into uh, inflammatory conditions. And mm. it's generally bad from both like a, a potential for cancer standpoint and also uh, can lead to other like cardiovascular problems, buildups and these sorts of things. I'm doing a little bit of hand waving here because I feel like there's, it seems that reactive oxygen species can be involved in an anything and everything from mm -hmm. what I've seen. I know they're associated with neurodegenerative diseases and they definitely deserve a podcast of their own at some point, but that's certainly my understanding. Yeah. They're once again, reminding me how creepy and crazy the cellular world is. Like they just sound kind of crazed. Like they'll go for anything. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I mean, it's like watching planet earth or something with much stupider animals. <laughs> <laughs> oh man what if there is a planet earth for cells i wonder how that would go over it'd be really scary do you think i think morgan freeman would still narrate that did they do morgan freeman for the american one i only watched oh, I the original know. i don't know i know he did the, the penguin one you're people. right he did do the penguin one but yeah i was just watching the um i think it was the mountains episode of planet earth 2 earlier but, anyway. is it scary not really. Okay. It's only scary if you're scared of um, Ibex. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's see. So also the um, 
green tea polyphenols have been tested in a bunch of different in vitro assays. It's been shown to have much higher antioxidant activity than a bunch of other plant compounds, even some that come from quote unquote superfoods. So green tea seems to outperform garlic compounds, kale compounds, spinach, Brussels sprouts. I don't want to get into every uh, detail, but basically every reactive oxygen species assay they tried, green tea was one of the best. That's very interesting. That might make me want to change the way I make smoothies. Yeah, I've been throwing it in mine. I've got some sort of probably not evidence-based plant powder that I throw in mine, and then I've also got some matcha, which Mm. it does bite because it doesn't really change the flavor at all, so you feel like you're not getting your money's worth, but it's probably doing something health-wise. Is that a good thing? Like, it doesn't taste bad or it doesn't actively taste good? I guess it depends. I mean, I kind of like the taste slash want to like the taste of green tea and matcha is kind of expensive. So I feel like it's kind of a waste of the matcha. Mm. But I mean, if your whole goal is to get the health benefit, then I suppose you get in. That's true. This is kind of convincing me that maybe I need to just boil a green tea concentrate and then just like take that in throughout the day. Not a bad idea. Yeah. This is where I'm, in, in the series of me making random changes following all of our podcasts, <laughs> I am going to try to take these, um, these green tea capsules and, you know, I'm not shouting out to a brand. We're not going to turn into Dr. Oz where we're selling you anything, but uh, I'm going to see if taking these green tea capsules does much for me. Who knows? At the end of the year, we will test Cody on a variety of measures depending on what lifestyle changes he's made and implemented and see how crispy and crunchy his heart blood vessels are. Oh, no. Stay tuned. (laughs) Okay, so now we can go into other interesting aspects of disease that green tea has been studied in relation to. The first one is a very important topic for me as my sister is a dentist and I am a person with many cavities, and that is green tea as it relates to cavities. They saw in animal studies that animals had lower rates of cavities when they were given, what's GTP? It's green tea polyphenols. And I spent way too much time trying to find that friggin' abbreviation in one of the reviews. (laughs) They didn't ever define it. They were just like... GTPs, and I'm like, what is a GTP? <laughs> okay, good. I don't feel silly. I'm pretty sure that's what it is now. Yeah, that makes sense. So when they had a 0.1% of green tea polyphenols in their drinking water, which, hey, maybe we can put this in our water along with the fluoride. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. Although yeah. then you're going to get some sort of conspiracy theory about how it's making everyone gay or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they'll sell green tea-free toothpaste. <laughs> They actually make green tea toothpaste. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So many things to try. Mm -hmm. They also did studies on humans that show that green tea inhibits an enzyme called amylase in your saliva, which is, once again, a helper protein that breaks down starches into sugar. And we all know that the sugar that's left in your mouth is what creates that yummy food and environment for bacteria to drill holes in your teeth and cause cavities. And they found that both green and black teas are a natural source of fluoride, which is interesting. All right. 
The next topic is sun damage, which I can also relate to being from Florida. Hmm. They found that topical, which is what you put on your skin, and oral, taking in by mouth, green tea has been shown to reduce the effects of UVB radiation, which is the bad kind of UV radiation that causes skin cancers. And they found that the green tea reduced inflammation, immunosuppression, which means quieting down your immune system, and oxidative stress, which is related to those crazed free radicals that we were talking about. Yeah, more of the hand-wavy badness. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if somebody's going to get on that and put green tea in sunscreen and make millions. Hmm. Maybe we should do it. Maybe we should. Maybe we shouldn't talk about our patent-pending ideas on a international forum. Yeah, <laughs> if Poland gets old, it's all over. <laughs> Shout out to our followers in Poland. We really appreciate you. Yeah. We're actually, when we start testing our commercials, we're going to start shouting out interesting facts about Poland and other countries that show up listening to us. Yeah. Until and unless we get a bunch of real um, ad things, which may not happen for quite some time. Yeah. And we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. I think we also have listeners from the UK, right? I think so. Greetings, UK residents. Yeah. Next interesting topic is bone density. So how thick your bones are. And we want our bones to be nice and thick. That's thick with two C's. <laughs> is that like a hip word? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for the cultural education. They found that consuming. Oh, okay. I need to read more about being thick. <laughs> they found that green tea consumption is linked to higher bone density and lower rates of hip fractures, which I know we all would want fewer hip fractures in our lives. Yeah, that's one of those things that sounds like it would be more preventable. But when you dive into the literature on falls and things, hip fractures are really, really bad. So just yeah. throwing that out there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Cody, tell us about some other interesting things that we've been talking about essentially in every podcast because they're so important. Yeah. So back to obesity, which is really bad and somewhat preventable, even though it's really hard to prevent. And they found that green tea inhibits gastric and pancreatic lipase. These are the enzymes that break down fats in the gastrointestinal tract and Without lipase breaking it down, fat's not absorbed as much during digestion and it just passes out mm. of the system. So this is one way that can prevent the taking up of excess calories, particularly from fat. It's also been found to inhibit fatty acid synthase, which is an enzyme that builds up fatty acids once the raw materials are in the body. And that's necessary to put fat into fat stores. They're stored as these really long chains of carbon and other uh, atoms. So without that, you can't store the energy. It's also got what are called thermogenic properties. So it promotes the oxidation of fatty acids that are in the body beyond what would be expected from its caffeine content alone. And this is uh, from a source by Delu and colleagues. And this is interesting because one of the things I was concerned about is, okay, everyone's taking these green tea capsules for fat loss or 
thinking that green tea is going to help them with, mm -hmm. with weight loss. Is this just people taking stimulants? Because I mean, if you take mm -hmm. enough of any kind of stimulant, it's mm -hmm. going to raise your metabolism a little bit. But this is cool that it seems to be doing more than just what the caffeine does. So there's something going on there. And some studies by Kovacs and colleagues found that weight maintenance in people who lost seven and a half percent of their body weight, that was not affected by green tea treatment. So this is another case where the effects and the mechanisms appear to be there, but there's more to the story. So again, this is not a magic bullet. You still need to think about some of the other strategies that we've talked about in other podcasts and you're going to need a multi-pronged approach if you're trying to maintain a healthy weight, especially if you're someone who has struggled with that in the past. Let's see, Wu and colleagues found that there was a, an inverse relationship among green tea consumption, body fat percentage, and body fat distribution, and it was most evident in people who used it for 10 years. So this is something that if you can gradually increase the amount of green tea you're taking in over a long period of time, you might start to see some results. I am 10 years behind seeing any results. <laughs> well, you also don't really have any obesity to contend with for what <laughs> that's it's worth. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, we, we're going to all have to get on the green tea bandwagon, I suppose. Yeah. And in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, which again is one of the strongest experimental designs, they found that consuming a beverage that had green tea, catechins, caffeine, and calcium raised 24-hour ex energy expenditure by 4.6%. That was by Rudell and colleagues done in 2007. And I think this is a good figure. 4.6%, that's enough of a bump that it's going to mm -hmm. really help out a total package. Yeah. But it's not going to solve all your woes by itself. Yeah. Sounds like a nice little way to boost your efforts to not sit. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're working on this on the wiki. We're going to put together this eventually ridiculous picture of what the ideal person would do <laughs> for their health. And I'm sure it will quickly become completely impractical. <laughs> totally. But, but it will be kind of interesting to see how all these things hang together yeah. as we develop uh, the, the quest for eudaimonia. So related to obesity are these findings about insulin sensitivity and diabetes. Our favorite thing. Yeah. So this is great. So obesity, insulin sensitivity, diabetes, heart disease, they all come together to form what we call the metabolic syndrome. And this is a major health problem in America and the developed world. If we're able to better address this, we could make huge strides for being able to save people people can have longer lives, people can spend less time in the hospital, and those health dollars can go toward helping people with problems that don't have lifestyle solutions. So this is something that is huge from this idea of trying to bring communities and medical people together. Mm -hmm. So I digress. <laughs> Insulin sensitivity and diabetes. Some rat studies by Wu and colleagues found that Green tea supplementation was associated with lower fasting glucose, lower insulin, lower triglycerides, which is a, a type of fatty molecule, and lower free fatty acid than control rats. And they also had increased basal and increased stimula insulin stimulated uptake of glucose in adipocytes. So that got sugar out of the bloodstream faster. 
which you would think would be kind of bad because it's going into the fat cells and it's going to potentially be turned into fat. But if it spends too much time in the bloodstream, it's bad because it does something called glycosylation, where if you want to get even more freaked out about all the crazy things going on in your body, sugar can essentially crystallize on stuff. (laughs) And that's where a lot of the health problems of diabetes come from. When they do that hemoglobin A1C, which anybody who's been evaluated for diabetes has had, that's actually looking at the amount of hemoglobin in your blood that has sugar uh, stuck to it from so much sugar hanging out in the body. Yeah, like rock candy. Yeah. Gross, right? And then it's going <laughs> to scrape up your endothelium, <sighs> and then you're going to get crispy blood vessels. Oh, no! And then you're going to get foam cells, which are bad. I don't want any foam. Yeah. Well, I want acoustic foam. Oh, acoustic foam all the way. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, Sabu and colleagues found that uh, green tea polyphenols improve glucose tolerance in a dose-dependent fashion. So this is another case where more seems to be better. Um, And uh, Waltner Law and colleagues found that EGCG, the the big player in green tea polyphenols, decreases glucose production by liver cells in an in vitro model. And it mimics insulin signaling and suppresses gluconeogenesis, which is a big word meaning making new sugar, which is something that the liver, I believe, does, Mm -hmm. right? That Mm -hmm. it's cranking out new sugar out of your stores, out of your glycogen stores when you need more sugar. Or making it from building blocks. Right. Because glycogenolysis is that fancy word for breaking down the supply you already have. Which is packed away kind of in like storage containers. But then gluconeogenesis is when you're like, oh, I've gotten through all the storage containers. Let me take the building blocks and make some Oh, God, is this the Krebs cycle and all that? It is. It is. Oh, thank goodness for you internal medicine types. (laughs) Well, thanks for explaining all of the study things and talking about all the cells. Well, it's got to be good for something, right? (laughs) All right. so, um, So, yeah. Another interesting thing is that for reasons that aren't quite clear yet, EGCG seems to protect pancreatic beta cells, which are some of the key players in the pancreas's function and its production of insulin. And that's what one of the things that you need for proper regulation of sugar in your bloodstream. So green tea seems to be really good from the perspective of trying to keep diabetes in check. Got it. Uh, And I'll offer one definition for what you said. The second study with Sabu and colleagues, the improved glucose tolerance. So that essentially just means when you get a big load of sugar, how do you handle it and pack it away or versus just letting it sit around in your bloodstream, which can happen to people who have diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I always think of it is that if you have Uh, an ideally functioning body, you get glucose in and your body's like, okay, we know what to do with that. And it goes where it's supposed to go. But if you're taking in too much glucose or if your body's systems for dealing with it are worn out, then it just chills out and it starts crystallizing things and leading to all that chaos we talked about. Absolutely. It's like a really lazy shipping facility Mm. or a broken one. That's not great. Yeah. I don't want to be judgmental about 
the human metabolism. <laughs> yeah. Or the shipping industry. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Which we also have a lot of in our great city of Baltimore. Yeah, that's right. We're a port town. Yeah. Next thing that I want to talk about is GI disease. So any disease of your sort of belly GI tract. The giant worm hanging out inside us. (laughs) Perhaps one of the creepier aspects of our anatomy. (laughs) I mean, I have so many nightmares today. Mm. Thinking about the crispy heart, the crazed radical, free radicals, and the, what else? The telomeres that never shorten and are immortal. (laughs) But I digress. Let's go back to the GI disease. So they found that they looked at 25 patients, this guy named uh, Pilipenko and other researchers. They gave them green tea tablets, and all these patients had different GI problems. The green tea increased their pain scores. What's ossicle functioning? That's social functioning, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So that is... The only ossicle I know of is in the ear. Wait a second. And it's spelled differently too, right? Yeah. That was Sabu et al? Uh, no, Pilipenko. Pilipenko. Via Chaco et al. Yeah. I'll probably say it again later, but I do need to shout out. So a lot of these studies we're talking about were accumulated in the very fine review articles by uh, Chaco and colleagues um, in the Chinese Medicine Journal in 2010, and also by uh, Carmen Cabrera and colleagues in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition in the year of our Lord 2006. <laughs> they did good work. Yeah. So I did not want to make it look like we were just scraping all their sources without giving them credit because <laughs> they did like a lot of work that made this way easier to do. But I also don't know the biochemical analysis differences. What does that mean? Their pain scores and their social functioning improved, but there was no biochemical difference. So it was like more of a subtle effect. Oh, okay. Like it did not affect their like blood work and things like that, but they felt better. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And they weren't really specific about what the GI diseases were, just like a lot of different things. Okay. Like GERD and PUD and all that. Okay. And then they found that the green tea decreased the level of all of their antioxidant status indices. So the bad effects of not having enough antioxidants went down. Yeah. And the example um, is the, the lipid peroxidation index, which is how much the oxidative stress is messing with the lipids, which are a type of fatty molecule in the, that's supposed to be in the body. Um, that index went from 4.63 to 4.14. So there was a notable difference there. I'm not really sure what the practical implication of that is. but Okay. And then the next thing I'll talk about is the brain, but not in the way that you love the brain, oh. the neurological way. Chaco et al., they found a study by Uno and other colleagues, and they found that in that study that in aged mice green tea delayed memory regression. So delayed the sort of decline of their memory in Mm. older mice. Nice. They also found that green tea could protect against Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease in some studies. 
So that's interesting, and I think that's another one of these areas where the the positives are at least hinted at, but I suspect that if we were to dig deep into that, mm-hmm. it's not going to you're not going to live forever and you're not 100% going to prevent everything, but it's a nice little boost. Yeah. Like a little extra sprinkle of sprinkles on top of your life. Yeah. All right. And now, if I may, it's my turn to dive into a little bit of an article. Oh, please, please dive. Okay. So this was kind of cool. This is a paper by Christina Dietz and colleagues in Food Research International in the year 2017, titled An Intervention Study on the Effect of Matcha Tea in Drink and Snack Bar Formats on Mood and Cognitive Performance. (laughs) So this is cool. They took, and this is more recent, 2017. A lot of these studies have taken place over the last couple of decades. But they did a randomized, placebo-controlled, single-blind study. They had 23 people do four different test sessions, so everybody went through all the different conditions. Um, And the four conditions were a matcha tea with four grams of matcha, Mm -hmm. a matcha bar with four grams of matcha, Mm -hmm. a placebo tea without matcha, and a placebo bar also without matcha. And then they assessed mood and they assessed cognition. They used something called the profile of mood states to get into the mood And they used uh, something called the Cognitive Drug Research Battery, which is a computerized assessment that's used in other studies on what are called nootropics or drugs and or supplements that are supposed to make your memory better. I know a battery is a series of questions, but it sounds super aggressive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you got to be rigorous in science anymore. (laughs) But just to... To give you guys a general idea what goes on, I don't want to belabor the point, but there's a word recall task, a reaction time task, a digit vigilance task, a (laughs) choice reaction task, and a spatial working memory task, and a numeric working memory task, as well as a delayed word recall task. So it kind of gets at a lot of different aspects of cognitive functioning, things that you would expect to improve if something was making you for lack of a better word, smarter or sharper. And what they found here was that the the mood was essentially not uh, affected by any of these green tea supplements. So this is not going to be something that's going to crack your depression or Mm -hmm. settle down your, your mania or anything like that. But they found that working memory was improved uh, and concentration also seemed to be improved. But the results were not greater than what would be expected for caffeine alone. So this was a nice rigorous study and it looks like there were some positive effects. But it's not clear that there were significant advantages beyond just the, uh, the caffeine itself. But that being said, it speaks to the idea that Picking up a green tea habit might give you a little bit of a boost on some of your tests and and things like that if you're a student or if you're trying to do something intellectually rigorous. Interesting. I mean, full disclosure, I did take one of Cody's green tea or matcha tablets before this podcast, and I think it's really helping my concentration. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, He just revealed our secret. (laughs) 
<laughs> There's going to be 10 new podcasts sprung up and they're all going to overtake us. <laughs> oh, no. Now it's important, Cody, to talk about the downsides to oh, green tea. Downsides. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I guess nothing's perfect, right? It's important to consider the confounds in a lot of these study designs, especially the population ones. And green tea has been associated with healthy lifestyles since forever. I mean, in the East, it's been known as a part of like traditional Chinese medicine and these things for a long time. And this creates a chicken and egg kind of problem. If you are a person in most societies in the world that I'm aware of, if you decide you're going to go on a health kick, it may very well be that drinking more green tea is part of that. So if you only look at somebody's green tea consumption and don't account for other aspects of that health kick, then you're going to make erroneous conclusions. Somebody's you're going to make it a bigger deal than it is. Right. So you might be like, oh, wow, it's time to get healthy, better work out, drink some green tea, stop smoking, do some yoga, <laughs> stop eating sugar, don't sit anymore. And then everyone's like, oh, man, green tea totally made everything better. <laughs> Got it. Next downside is that people who are sensitive to xanthic basis, which is what a lot of these polyphenols and compounds that we talked about in green tea, if you're sensitive, if you have an allergy to it or something, you may not be able to use green tea safely. The next thing is that people with heart problems, so any sort of a crispy, crunchy heart or anything else that's going on, you may suffer negative consequences from the caffeine in tea because that's bad. You know, it makes your heart race. It increases the sort of working mode of the heart and it needs more of everything, more oxygen, more blood. And if you have those blockages, that could be bad. And there's also an option, of course, to get decaffeinated green tea, which could be safer, but it is very difficult to find decaf green tea. Yeah. I was actually talking about this with my cashier at Walgreens. Shout out to Donna. Hey, Donna. <laughs> that she uh, was saying that she didn't like the, the caffeine, but she could never find the the capsules without the caffeine in them. And the oh. yeah, the evidence shows that most of the good stuff in terms of the EGCG doesn't require caffeine. So it would be very possible to make decaffeinated green tea capsules, but it's not something that's widely available. I certainly didn't see it when I was looking around. Interesting. You know what? I actually think that I've had decaffeinated green tea from Trader Joe's before. I know it's not widely available and it's kind of yuppie, but... It, I think it does exist there. Yeah, and I think the, the tea bags are findable. Oh, but okay. But the capsules are a big problem. Oh, yeah. But okay. that's just, yeah, it's something to keep in mind and that even if caffeine is not your bag or you're really, you know, maybe you've got an anxiety problem, maybe you've got a heart problem, mm -hmm. you can still go for the decaf green tea and get a lot of the things we talked about here. Got it. This is a wishy-washy downside, but... Green tea could lead to aluminum accumulating in your body, which could lead to neurologic disease. I'm doing a lot of hand-waving as I'm saying this because this is very sort of loose. Yeah, and when I was looking at that, it looked like you would have to take in a really high quantity of green tea, and it would also probably have to be tea that grew in an area that had an unusual amount of aluminum. So it's not something okay. that's going to practically become an issue for most people. Okay. 
And then the other thing is that green tea can interfere with the absorption of a certain type of iron, which could be bad in people with anemia because you want more iron. You want your blood to have more capacity to carry oxygen everywhere, which you don't have in anemia. But it could be good in people who have a condition called hemochromatosis, which is basically iron overload. Their body has way too much iron and it goes everywhere and sort of settles down in every part of your body and causes damage. And it's important to mention that the, the subtype of iron that's affected is non-heme. So people who eat meat can get a lot of their iron through heme. It's absorbed much more easily because it's already packaged the mm. way animals like it. But people who eat vegetarian diets or eat less meat uh, are much more reliant on non-heme iron. This is still less of a problem in the developed world because mm -hmm. we do have a lot more access to cheap calories and supplements. Mm -hmm. But um, it's especially important in people who are eating a low meat diet or no meat diet. And mm. it's that the population that should probably be thinking about iron the most is women of reproductive age because there's that routine iron loss uh, going on monthly. Yeah. I'm thinking about donating blood and green tea. It's all mixing in my head. Mm. Well, you're just going to have to eat a lot of non-heme iron. Yeah, I guess so. I'll need to eat a lot of black beans. All right. So a couple of nutritional notes. The uh, things to keep in mind with green tea, it's got basically no calories if it's not sweetened. It's a good source of a number of vitamins and minerals, including manganese. And the caffeine content is about a quarter the strength of normal coffee. And if you're... Uh, starting to store some of the important numbers from this podcast, that means that matcha being about two to three times uh, regular green tea puts you at about even with coffee. Mm, I've, okay. heard, I've heard anecdotally that some people have had luck replacing coffee with matcha because it, it does have a little more punch. Interesting. That's making me think about coca leaves and how farmers in Peru chew them to stay awake because they have caffeine in them. Wait, coca leaves have cocaine in them. No, no, you process it a bunch, a bunch, and then it creates cocaine. Cocaine, But the actual leaf, I think, has the prequel to cocaine. Yeah. Is it the prequel, or is it just that the concentration is super low? I honestly don't know. You know, I don't know. We might have to do another podcast on coca leaves. Let's see. Yeah. I do think sometimes that the act of concentrating is how we've screwed ourselves as a species. Totally. Like, I see a lot of parallels between sugar and cocaine. Yeah. Like, if we never ate sugar more concentrated than we found it in nature, we'd yeah. have, like, so few sugar problems. Totally. Because yeah. if you think about it, fruit should be the sweetest thing that you eat. And, you know, it takes, fruit often has fiber, like an apple has fiber, so it's going to take a little while for your body to process that anyways. But you can just eat a fruit roll-up. Yeah. Or some candy, which is amazing. <laughs> it is. It's so good. We're so good and so bad as humans. Mm. Next thing that I want to talk about is, now you've heard the evidence about green tea, how do you want to take it? And how much do you want to take? So the key definition that we have to go through before we talk about how much to take is bioavailability, which is a fancy word for how much of something you're actually getting after taking it in. And... This is kind of thinking about it uh, in a general way. 
Anything that you take in by your mouth has to be first absorbed into the bloodstream from your gut, and then it can be affected by proteins in your blood, it can be affected by proteins in the liver, and then also by proteins in the kidneys, and the kidneys' ability to filter things out. So once something enters your body and your bloodstream, there are a lot of things processing it and breaking it down. Yeah, and what they've found in terms of the practical bioavailability is that a lot of the effects we talked about are seen in pretty reasonable quantities. For example, the antioxidant capacity of blood plasma has been seen to change in people after about one to six cups per day. So that's not a crazy amount of green tea to get into mm -hmm. your diet. And, and regular consumption of green tea and green tea capsules both showed decreased biomarkers of oxidative status, according to McKay and Bloomberg. And uh, Clownig and others found that six cups of green tea a day reduced lipid peroxidation, reduced DNA damage, and reduced free radical generation after only seven days. Wow. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. It's one of those things where the biomarkers, I, I, it's interesting, but it kind of bites that it's not like you're, you're probably not going to necessarily feel a major difference in mm -hmm. your in your health after seven days, but it's kind of nice to know that something's going on yeah, yeah. that quickly. It's nice to know that you're getting pretty quick changes. Yeah. And some practical considerations. So milk doesn't affect the absorption significantly. It might affect the antioxidant potential of tea compounds, but the takeaway was that it's certainly much better to have uh, green tea with some milk in it than to just eschew the idea of green mm. tea altogether. Okay. Um, and then canned and bottled tea, the process of storing it in that way is not thought to affect the bioavailability or the antioxidant activity. So if you're in a hurry and you're in a convenience store or something, canned or bottled green tea is still giving you most, if not all, of the benefits of the fresh stuff. Awesome. I will encourage all of you to take a look at how many grams of sugar is in that can or bottle of tea because a lot of canned and bottled teas I find have a lot more sugar than we might put in ourselves. Yeah, that's one thing that I found frustrating is I have, since I've started trying to drink less pop and fewer artificial sweeteners, it's kind of a pain to find unsweetened beverages. I mean, you can usually find water, right? Mm -hmm. But like you say, typically the vast majority of what you're going to find on the shelves is either sugar sweetened to a great degree or it's got a bunch of artificial sweeteners in it. So those are things to think about. Yeah, except for LaCroix and other fizzy waters. Mm, this is true. <laughs> but if you want something that tastes like a taste. <laughs> and not a suggestion of a taste. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cody, you need to just drink more water. Yeah, I wish it wasn't so boring. But <laughs> I'll take it. You know what's funny? I never loved the taste of water until I ran cross... Well, actually, no. Until I played sports, basically, growing up. A hot Florida afternoon playing a soccer game, and you drink that first drink of cold water from your big, giant, cooler water bottle. It's just heavenly. Uh, yeah. I've been... Like, when I was in football camp back in the day, when you've exerted yourself, it's like you're your taste receptors have completely changed and water is like the greatest taste imaginable. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Hmm. So maybe if you're not feeling that, 
cup of water, you should just run around the block three or four times and then come back to it. Shh, you're burying the headline. We haven't <laughs> talked about exercise yet. <laughs> is exercise good? Is exercise bad? Who's to say? Who knows? A way to further podcast. Mm. Now we'll move on to some takeaway points. So the two points that I have is that green tea has several reasons to be a good thing based on in vitro studies. So a lot of the studies looking at cells or animals in the lab, they showed positive effects of green tea. But the real-life effects were often weak and or controversial. A lot of the things that we reviewed kind of said, hey, we think maybe this affects this, but we really need more studies. We really need better quality evidence to think about it and talk about it further. Well, like you had described in the hot tea study, was that you and colleagues? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other good and bad things going on in a human Mm -hmm. society as far Mm -hmm. as health habits go. So any of the human studies are going to be a little bit dirtier for lack of a better Absolutely. Word. You can't control everything. Yeah. But another thing that we should probably keep in mind is that if you are making a conscious effort to crank up your green tea consumption, you're probably going to increase your water consumption as well, which is something that is generally a good thing. True. True. Um, that may be worth um, diving more into. I know Dr. Steele brought up the fact that she mm-hmm. focuses on the eight glasses of water as a big part of the obesity uh, prevention that she mm-hmm. recommends. So that may be part of of how this can be a benefit. And the uh, the takeaway points I wanted to mention are that uh, casual short-term usage appears unlikely to have much benefit according to the literature. So if you're hoping to really get something out of this, it makes sense to think of it like any other positive lifestyle change and try to set a goal, try and think of other things you can replace and how you can work more green tea into your uh, daily routine. Mm-hmm. And the the long-term incorporation of more and more green tea consumption in the diet is at worst neutral. We talked about some of the downsides, but unless you have um, a specific health problem preventing it, it's unlikely to do major harm. And at best, it's helpful. So it's hard to argue that it would be a bad thing unless you find the taste so terrible that it's just not (laughs) even close to worth it. (laughs) Or if you're overwhelmed by the thought of having to drink six to ten glasses of green tea a day. Yeah. Yeah, that could definitely get old. But that's where I do think that there's something to be said about doing things the natural way, but... I don't see any problem with the green tea capsules with the one caveat that it's important to look into the vendors of any herbal supplement you take because they're not often very well regulated. And just because it says 200 milligrams of EGCG on the bottle doesn't necessarily mean you're getting it. So it may be worth looking around and seeing what brands are uh, reputable. Sometimes there will be either consumer studies or proper scientific, uh, like peer reviewed studies that have been done on these products. And if you have the time and the energy, it's probably good to check into that before you place your trust in a label. Um, Absolutely. And if you ever have questions on how to find reliable information like that, you can always email us. Yeah. 
which almost brings me to the plugging things portion. <laughs> but I did want to make sure that I mention again that uh, the articles that we dove into, the only way we're able to discuss the literature is because of the fine people doing science. And these are oftentimes uh, graduate students, techs, and people who are working their butts off, not making very much money and hoping that they'll eventually get to be professors and these sorts of things. So um, Cabrera and colleagues wrote uh, one of the major reviews that we uh, talk about here. And the other major one was Chaco and colleagues. And these will be in, available in the show notes. And then the primary articles we discussed were you and colleagues and uh, Dietz and colleagues. Um, so we invite you to check those out on the wiki at uh, humanityagainstdisease.com. Our Gmail account is againstdisease at gmail.com. Send us fan mail, worried, concerned emails about our health. Yeah, hate mail. We're open to anything. Mm -hmm. Our Instagram handle is, or I guess it's not a handle. Our Instagram name is humanityagainstdisease. I think that one's just againstdisease. Againstdisease. We are double-checking in real time. Our Facebook, you also can just search for Against Disease, and you should be able to find us. And what have I left out? Our Twitter handle, what is that, Cody? Our Twitter is also Against Disease. And apparently not very many people we interact with use Twitter on a regular basis. Interesting. Yeah. That's good to know. But yeah, um, that's that's where most of the action is. We're hoping to uh, hear from uh, anybody. If you guys have a specific topic you want to hear about, if you have questions, if you want us to revisit anything, if you want to um, tell us that you agree or disagree or want clarification on anything, we're happy to have a um, people are actually listening to us corner. <laughs> and um, we invite you guys to support uh, Support us. We have uh, there's a Patreon in the works, but we'll we'll offer up details uh, for that later. Right now, the major fundraising project going on for Humanity Against Disease is our compilation album. So, 15 fine bands have offered up one song each for a um, compilation of. Uh, rock music ranging from the softer stuff to the harder, like hardcore punk style uh, and metal style music. And we will be speaking with as many of these um, band members as possible in the coming months. But we invite you to check them out, support the bands, support us, uh, pick up the compilation at um, the Smog Moon Recordings uh, website. And that's all available on our Facebook. Absolutely. I have listened to it. Of course, I have inherent biases for this compilation album, but I am a fan more so of soft rock, pop rock, and maybe some punk. And I liked all of those songs on the album. And the metal, I will say that it is pretty relaxing and meditative to listen to in its very screaming way. Yeah, and I have a, a higher tolerance than most for that genre, but I thought it ended up being a really nice album. So. Oh yeah, very high quality music. I was not, I was so impressed and so honored that we can associate our name with such an album. Yeah, and it's got Dan Jones on the cover, so that's cool too. Yeah, 
I am so excited, Cody, for your interview with Dan Jones. It's going to be awesome. All right. So I think that's about, about our podcast. Oh, yeah. All right. Calling it. Out. Damn. Oh, that's... <laughs> that was such a bad. There we go. <laughs>